Hi, this is Everyone Everywhere, Church Army's Evangelism Podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Hannah. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Amy Hayes, who is Pioneer Evangelist at Selby Centre of Mission. We're going to be talking evangelism, Selby, tattoos, and cute dogs. So it's the fourth episode of Everyone Everywhere, and today is the first in our four-long episode history of Everyone Everywhere that we have a guest with us live in the studio. We're going to be hearing from Amy in a little bit. But first, a little bit of news, because we are recording this on the 12th of March, and currently coronavirus is the big thing in the news at the moment. You know, I was actually reading an article um, this morning there is an amusement arcade in Devon that's taken all of its plush toy prizes out of its grab machines and replaced them with hand sanitizer and toilet rolls. It's just crazy. I'm so glad that the coronavirus hasn't stopped you coming to us, Amy. Well, I did decide to like brave the elements, but I was just down at that arcade there a few days ago and I won the jackpot, mate. So if anybody wants any black market hand sanitizer or toilet roll, <laughs> I'm the person to contact. Good to know. I'm glad we've got our backup here. Yeah, um, I got you covered. Quick aside though, I was I was clearing out my car glove compartment the other day and I found half of um, a bottle of hand sanitizer and the first thing Rosie said to me was like, don't leave that on the dashboard. <laughs> That's true actually. It could be the thing that causes a break-in. Yeah. How have we got to this point? Cell phone, keys left untouched, but there's hand sanitizer gone. I, I did hear of a, a kid in school that got... Um, chucked out for the day because he was selling, you know, hand sanitizer at 50p a squirt. That's which, mad, isn't it? It's good entrepreneurship, you know what I mean? Like Alan Sugar would have been proud, yeah. but, you know, the principal wasn't. I feel like a lot of the stuff in the news at the moment is about people panicking, which I don't think we need to do. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think actually the kind of cause for concern and people rushing out to buy lots of stuff gives us a real opportunity to be so and light in this place. And even if it's just with how we react to the situation, I don't know, have you guys thought about how in this time of the coronavirus, you can reach out to people that are around you? Um, I suppose like there is that whole thing if everything gets shut down and schools are closed and you're not allowed to run activities and church is normal, like, what do you do with that? Um, so does ministry then look like social media? Mm. Um, and then what does that mean? But I think just as you were speaking, it just reminded me of, of Jesus calming the storm. And while the whole world is going crazy, he's just having a nap. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we're going on a two-week nap as we self-isolate, but I think there is something in that of, of speaking peace uh, in the midst of the chaos. Um, so yeah, the thing that you said about the reaction and how we react differently, I think is almost like a prophetic statement in the midst of, of a fear culture. Mm, I think that's a really good point actually. And I guess we've got people who do need to worry potentially a little bit because they're vulnerable, but people who don't have that same vulnerability, we have the potential to look out for those people as well, which I think is an important thing. And it's interesting we're talking about how to reach out to people in the midst of this because we're actually now in the middle of our Being Salt and Light series. And mm. I think, Hannah, your guest writer this week actually talks about coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. And the thing she reflects upon is 
how actually there are some people who don't have the mobility to get out and panic buy. Some people don't have the money to panic buy and by us who have the ability to do that are doing that. It just has negative impacts on other people. And how can we be looking out for others rather than trying to like, I guess, just look out for ourselves? Yeah, I suppose like one of the simple ways that um, Richard in particular in particular has, has led in Selby is just as people arrive to, to church, just saying, here, mate, do you mind washing your hands? And it's it that it's a very simple way of caring for the vulnerable, of caring for the elderly, of caring for those who have a lower immune system for whatever reason. Um and yeah, of course, like most of us might not be affected by it, but it's just, you know what, I care about you, so I'm gonna do the simple thing. Yeah, I think that's a really simple, easy way to look out for each other, actually. So Amy, before we launch into big questions about your work and um, evangelism. We wanted to start off by talking to you about your dog. I love my dog. I thought you'd want to speak about him. <laughs> oh, my dog is like the best dog in the world. He's Bar called none. Fergus, right? Yes, or sometimes Bishop Fergus, depending on the day. <laughs> he, he has a bishop costume, you see. He, uh, we have the Archbishop coming to the Edge community this Sunday. That's right. Um, so a way of kind of getting people excited about it, getting to talk to people, inviting people along. The Archbishop doesn't know this, but we dressed up Fergus as a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a perfect gimmick to to get people talking and asking questions and, and things like that. Um, and actually, so we're, with the Being Salt and Light series that's going on, we've got a Facebook group where people are chatting about how they're getting on Being Salt and Light in communities. And one person on there has shared a couple of stories about how they've got the opportunity to talk to me about Jesus whilst on walks. And I, I wonder, is, is that the case for you in your community? Absolutely. Like just this past week, um, just after I got Fergus, I didn't close the front door quick enough and he got out. Um, and I've had him since he was a pup. And he ran over to this other dog on the other side of the street who is a pretty was a pretty old and blind dog. Um, and the owner was quite protective, obviously, which was fair enough. And, and she was pleasant enough. Um, and I was very apologetic and all that. But a couple of days ago, I was walking Fergus in the morning and we just have our normal little route. Um, and she sees me walking the dog and she comes over to me and she's like, I, I just wanted to let you know that, that we lost our dog uh, about two weeks ago. Now, this woman doesn't know me. Um, so I got to talk to her a bit about that and invite her along to cream tea that we're doing soon. And um, just taking the time to listen to that was amazing. Um, another lass I bumped into a couple of days ago um, was from County Clare down south. Um, and she's been living in Selby for seven years. I had no idea, like just a stone threw away from my house. And she had a dog and and Fergus and her dog got along. So we just started chatting and again, just invited her along to some things, um, took time to listen to her and a bit of her story. And yeah, it's just remarkable. And dogs seem to know who to go to. Um, they seem to have this instinct of, you know what, this person might need a wee chat or um, just to stroke me for a while. So you mentioned about County Clare, is that, is that the county you said? Yes, oh, I, I said did. it wrong. <laughs> county Clare. 
Yeah, or as Northern Irish people say, County Clare. County Clare. No, I can't do it. I know. <laughs> don't even ask me to. Um, but in case people listening don't know, you're from Ireland, right? I'm from Northern Ireland. Northern yes. Ireland. Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am. I am indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump straight in, actually, and say, so what? how did you end up in Selby? Good question. Um, so I had been working for a parish uh, just on the border in Northern Ireland. And that was coming to the end of the contract. And I was looking at what was out there for next, trying to discern where I was meant to go. Um, and there was a job in Hull that was like minimum wage, but incarnational living in the inner city. And But there was also a job in Banbridge, which is really close to my hometown and my family and some of my friends in YWAM. So on paper, it made sense to go for that job because it was the same salary that I was on. Um, and I knew people. But I, I just asked God, you know, which is it? And immediately I heard Hull. Um, so I went over to Hull for a walk around and just to see, you know, if this was just a nice idea in my head or if there might be something to it. And uh, yeah, I, I just had this phrase in my, in my head, but I never told anyone about it because it sounded really weird. Um, but the day after I got back, I went down to stay with friends of mine, um, who are missionaries in, in Roscommon. And she asked me how it was. And then she said the phrase and it was just kind of like, okay. So I, I didn't even apply for the other job. Mm-hmm. I just applied for the one on Hull and got the job, moved over there. Um, and then that came to sudden end, shall we say. And then I heard about this job. In, in Selby with Church Army. Um, the funny thing is, I always said I would never work for the church. And then I certainly would never work for the Church of England. And I definitely would never live in England. But alas, here we are. Yeah, look how things have turned out. I know, it's kind of like God sitting up there going, ah, gotcha. <laughs> it's funny how like your story is just like one of kind of like listening and going and listening and going and like how the journey kind of like works in that way. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the beauties of it. Uh, it's one of the beauties and the frustrations of it. Because, mm. you know, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But he doesn't say that he's going to tell us what they are straight away. Um, and, and that can be the frustrating thing when you're sitting in the midst of the unknown. But then as soon as you know, you know. Mm. And you know that he has it covered. So then you just go. Mm. So going right back to before Selby, could you just walk us through a little bit of your journey through coming to faith and then realizing that you are gifted like an evangelist and how that's something that kind of you are and it's built into you? Sure. Um, So when I was about, well, I I grew up in a Christian home um, and then my, my family kind of broke up and that was really hard. Um, and even at the age of 10 and 11, I was asking the big question, you know, if God is all good and if God is all loving, why is this happen- happening in my family? And nobody gave me a sufficient answer. And it didn't matter what, you know, ministers or pastors I talked to, I just, n- none of their answers satisfied me. Um, so I became really angry with God and I was a kid that ripped up Bibles, um, And I did whatever I could to shake my fist in his face. So I looked into Satanism. 
I know, I never do things by half measures. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would have bought a satanic Bible, only I didn't have 100 quid at the time, thankfully. Um, but yeah, I had a friend in, in junior high school and we called each other mucker. Still call each other mucker. And she was like the worst Christian in the world. You know what I mean? She always ended up in the principal's office and on a Friday afternoon, I was always in the vice principal's office, but that's beside the point. And uh, she always prayed for me. And I hated the fact that she prayed for me. And she knew, because I made her know, <laughs> that I hated that she prayed for me. Um, and around that time as well, I was struggling with self-harm and, and things like that. And um, I had prayed that God would let me die in the night because I didn't want to be alive. And when that didn't work, I asked Satan if he would do it. And that didn't seem to work either, um, thankfully. So I was out at Mucker's, um, Mucker's house this one day and she's dancing about in her room as, you know, a 13, 14-year-old does to this Christian music. And as soon as I caught on that it's Christian music, I'm like, Mucker, turn it off. And she's like, why is up, Mucker? I'm only dancing to it. I was like... I don't want to hear it, turn it off. Oh, why is it? I'm only dancing. It's like, right, fine, whatever. And the course of that song uh, said, hey, little girl, with the pressures of the world on your shoulders, don't say that it's over. I've heard your prayers, just cast your cares, and I'll be there, so don't you fear. And in that moment, I knew that was God speaking directly to me. Um, but I was like really cool and hard, so I didn't tell Mucker. Um, <laughs> So anyway, that we went down for dinner and I was sitting there with um, with Mucker and her mum and her auntie and I went to reach for something and Mucker's auntie saw my arm, which was shredded. And she's like, Amy, why do you do it? And she was the first person that ever asked me why. Everybody was just like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. It's kind of like, yeah, no. <laughs> but that didn't deal with the pain. Um, so yeah, that night... Uh, when I went home, I, I gave my life to Jesus. And yeah, I, I, str I still struggled with the self-harm thing because that was like my coping thing. Um, but then when I was 16, I, I, I talked to one of my youth leaders, Catherine, and she's like, well, let's pray about it. And when she prayed for me, she put her hand on my shoulder and then she went quiet and I was like, did I close my eyes? Did I open my eyes? Has she finished praying? Has she started praying? What did I do? Like, I've never had someone pray like this before. <laughs> um, and then she started prophesying. And she was like, Amy, God says that he likes you. He really, really likes you. And I was kind of like, he likes me? He's meant to love me? What's this about? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I didn't say that at the time because she was doing something really weird and I didn't know what was going on. And... Then she said, Amy, I can see you standing at the foot of the cross and you're saying, Jesus, here I am. Look at my scars. But Amy, Jesus is looking at you and saying, Amy, here I am. Look at my scars. They cover yours. And it wasn't that I never self-harmed again after that, but that broke something. It broke the power of it or the power if you're English. <laughs> and... You know, it was never as bad after that. Like, yes, I still struggled at times with depression and, and thoughts of suicide and, and things like that. But the power of that self-harm thing was broken that day because um, God spoke. That's incredible. From what, what, I, what I hear from a lot of what you're saying is like that thing of being seen, mm. seen by other people and also seen by God, which 
yeah, it just goes deeper than other things. Absolutely. And it's not, a, yeah, it's not a superficial scene. It's mm. not, you know, oh, there's Jimmy, you know, there's a kid that self forms, there's, you know, it was, yeah, it was seeing the real me. It was seeing the broken me, um, the me that wasn't coping um, and actually caring about that and not just judging it. Um, so, yeah, so then I went on a journey of kind of lying on floors in prayer rooms um, and Catherine was massively in- influential in that. Um, and when I was 16, we did this outreach called Expression in Portadown. It was like a week of servant evangelism. And during that week, I encountered the Holy Spirit for the first time in that way. And after that, I was like, why is this not in the church? Like, why do I not see this stuff happening in the building? Um, and... Yeah, I, and when I encountered the Holy Spirit like that, I was so hungry for him. Like, I was so hungry for his word. Every break time and lunchtime, I had my Bible out. Um, every evening when I got home from school, I lay on the floor and had worship music on, just soaking in his presence, just wanting to be with him and know him. Um, and that very naturally out of that was them talking to people about him. So I was that annoying kid at school and, and Portadown was quite a strong Christian community. So I couldn't understand that people weren't experiencing the same thing that I was experiencing. So I would go into school and I'd be like, so what did he say to you last night? What did God say to you last night? And they're like, nothing. And I was like, what do you mean nothing? He's always talking, like he always speaks. Um, and... Yeah, I remember even just going for walks along the river band and, and seeing this lady one day. And there was clearly something wrong with her. And I'm like, you know, this wet behind the ears Christian that, you know, just knows that God is real. And we sat and talked. And I just took time to listen to her story and, and spoke to her about Jesus. And it was a very natural thing. It wasn't this, you know, I must do evangelism. I must think about doing evangelism. It was being fixated with the beauty of Jesus. And then out of the overflow of that, things naturally happened. Um, there was even a teacher one day that uh, came down the stairs while I was like explaining some Bible thing to some other student. And she was kind of like, Amy, you're really serious about this thing, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, of course. And then two days later, I got an email from her. And she's kind of like, Amy, can we maybe talk sometime about something that you have that I might have lost? Like a lot of things have happened in life, but you know, you, you have something. And so I replied to her, but I never heard anything back since, um, which was fine. Um, so yeah, so around that time, like mission was a natural default. It's kind of like, I always mm-hmm. thought I would, as soon as I was 18, I was going to go to America. I was going to, you know, go to the inner city, to the roughest parts and like, just hang out with, with the broken and talk about Jesus. And then I went to Bible college. <laughs> instead um, and yeah which looking back was actually a really key part of my life um, more so for the stuff I learned outside of class not that the stuff in class wasn't valuable but like there was uh, a lady there Jill um, who was one of my lecturers but also a pastoral carer and just helped me deal with some of the deep wounds that I had and, and just loved me and I, well, I just think this, she's just the most incredible person in the world. Like she's one of my heroes to this day. Um, but someone who knew Jesus in the midst of suffering. Mm. 
And so she could tell me how to know Jesus in the midst of suffering. Um, so yeah, that kind of was how it rolled. What did your friend make of all of this? Which one? Mucker. Mucker? Right, so um, I met up with Mucker a couple of years later because after junior high, like we went to two different schools and we met up a couple of years later and she was like, Mucker, I was talking to my youth leader about you and I'm like, oh, please, no, what have you said? Like, you know, this can't be good. And she was like, Amy, I was just saying to her, you know, like the person that seems furthest away from God is often the one that's closest to him. Now, if you would have said that to me at the time, I would have laughed in your face and probably thrown some expletives at you. But there's something profoundly true about that. Mm. You know, that, okay, here was the kid that was ripping up Bibles and looking into Satanism and cursing God out. But yet God was pursuing me in a way that nobody else could have and in a way that nobody else could have known. Um, So, yeah, we still touch base from time to time and, yeah... Yeah, because how often do we write people off or think that they're not worth talking about Jesus to because they must be so far away. But a story like yours is just a case in point that actually God is working and we just need to follow where he is. Absolutely. It's, you know, Church Army often talk about the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And, you know, it's not our mission and it's not the church's mission. It's God's mission and the mission has a church. I uh, can't remember who said that originally. I'll just claim it as mine, not really. Um, but it's so true. Like, Jesus is pursuing his kids. Mm. And we get to join in that. And it's just, it's the most ridiculous thing because he just turns up in the most profound places. Let's go to Selby now. Um, theoretically, we're not going to pitch up and drive over there. Always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um what is going on there? What are you up to in Selby now? Okay, so I, I'm the pioneer evangelist in Selby Centre of Mission, uh, along working alongside Captain Richard Cook, the legend that is. And yeah, so I suppose day to day, we have Jaffa After Schools Club. We've GAB, which is God and Biscuits, a women's Bible study group um, that takes place in my home. And Fergus is the main welcomer. At, at that one um, we do one-to-one stuff we run a fresh expression of church we run school assemblies um, and yeah just just whatever whatever comes along really we have a mission on this weekend um, so the archbishop's coming and we're also having a magic show in this more tea vicar event because um, that's a very English thing to do apparently. it is very English yeah yeah you know being culturally sensitive here you know <laughs> You don't love tea? Oh, I love tea. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a member of the Tea Appreciation Society. You got the badge one. and everything. Certificate? Oof. <laughs> uh, Amy, last time we talked on the phone, you were telling me about a story that came from the Jaffa Club. Could you tell me again about that? Okay, so we were in the middle of this really chaotic session, and I'll be honest, I was just looking to get to the end of the session so I could go home, get a cup of tea and lie in a dark room for half an hour. Um, The kids were on one that day. And it came to the bit where we would tell the Bible story. So we were doing about the return of the 72 disciples after Jesus had sent them out. And in the paraphrase of Luke's gospel that we use, um, a diary of a disciple, Jesus starts his prayer by saying, Hey, Dad. And 
one of the kids piped up, Amy, does that kind of mean that Jesus kind of had two dads? You know, Joseph and then God. And I was like, yeah, it kind of does. But do you want to know the really cool thing? And the room went silent. Um, it was one of those like holy moments. And I was like, if we decide to follow Jesus, God becomes our dad too. And all the kids erupted with, yes! And one kid was like, I finally have a dad. Um, and it was just, you know, seeing that Psalm, Psalm 68 verse 5, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. And we were literally getting to see that before our eyes. These kids encountered God as a father in that moment in a way that couldn't have been planned, in a way that I would ne never have dreamt would have happened in that session. Um, but yeah, it was incredible. I got to tell you, I, I welled up when you told me that story. Yeah, and I'll, I'll fill you in on the, the backstory some other time. But yeah. it's, yeah, it, it's moments like that that you live for as an mm. evangelist. You know, it's God encountering his kids, God pursuing his kids. Um, yeah. So I have a question about how you do what you do in Selby. So obviously you're just, you're telling us about Jaffa and um, the women's Bible study group. How do you share faith in that setting without it just becoming kind of like an events-based thing or like you're there as a professional? How do you share God in a more authentic way? Uh, I think we, we do life with them. So I live and work on the estate and... A lot of our conversations happen either in my living room or in their kitchen or just out and about in the street. So it's not that we're just these professionals. We're also a part of their community. They know that we love them and care for them because we also go to their homes. You know, you, you go along to meetings with them. And it's not just about our agenda. It's listening to what they have going on. It's listening to what they would like to see and help facilitate that. Um, how do we share the gospel? It looks different for each person. So, you know, we do have our organised things like Jaffa. Um, but even within Jaffa, you know, there, there's one young boy and he's just so wise and it's just calling that out in him. Or someone might be really creative and it's kind of like, you know what, mate, you're so creative. Or, you know what, I've never looked at that perspective before of what you see about the Bible. And it's just building them up in that. Um but there's another lady that I spend some time with and, and she struggles with, with her mental health um, and life's been hard, um, we'll, we'll say. And um, we, we now paper mache together. It's the most ridiculous thing. Um, we have, well, we started with sand art, which I didn't even know what it was before hanging out with her. And now we are making... A, a paper mache duck that is going to go inside a paper mache teacup and then we're going to make a teapot and then we're going to make a life-size human out of paper mache and it's so ridiculous you know if you asked what does an evangelist do their first response isn't going to be paper mache mm -hmm. um but when we started doing the sand art it was the first time i ever seen her laugh or smile have we had deep conversations about god no but when I was there last week, she was like, Amy, it's just so hard to be negative around you. Like you, at some point you always make me laugh. Like you're just mad. 
And and I think there's something of the kingdom of God in that, where this lady, you know, who life's been hard to her, gets to have her head above the water for five minutes. Well, a couple of hours because paper mache takes a bit longer. But, you know, nothing seems ridiculous. Well, it all seems ridiculous, so therefore nothing seems ridiculous. Um, so for her, that's what the gospel looks like. And eventually we, we might start talking about things of faith. Um, f- for another last, just before I came down to Sheffield last night, um, some kids had thrown this young girl's coat in the bin in the park. And she was sent back from her house to, to get the coat, um, which is fair enough. But she didn't want to put her hand in the bin because it's, it's all grimy in there. Um, so what look, loving like Jesus looked like yesterday was getting to the park before that kid to pull the coat out of the bin and to give it to her halfway up the street so that she didn't have to do that. Um, and hopefully now she knows she's a little bit more loved. That what those other kids did not only was wrong, but it's not who she is. That doesn't speak to her value. Um, what God says speaks to her value. Um, so yeah, it looks different for, for each person you meet, I suppose. And I think that's really interesting because I think it's very easy to default to thinking that evangelism is having to crowbar a certain conversation into like every conversation you have with someone to somehow engineer the conversation to be able to give your planned gospel message. Yeah. But actually, like you just said with those two examples, it's actually just loving on people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest gift that we can give people, whether as evangelists or as people doing evangelism, whatever title you want to put around it, is to just authentically be ourselves. Tell our own story. Listen to their story and interweave the God story. And... You know, when people realise that you're not this goody two-shoes and haven't been this goody two-shoes all your life, not that I really am one now, but (laughs) um, it becomes earthed, you know, and I'm very much of the opinion that if our theology doesn't work in the dirt, it's not good theology. Um, So, yeah, so it has to be grounded and it's, it's simple, you know, get fascinated with Jesus and then just do life. Um. We can come up with 101 new formulas and strategies, but let's just bring it back. You know, love Jesus, talk about him, just love people. Now, Amy, there's a question that I've been dying to ask you for a, a long time. You've got a lot of tattoos. I do. Can you tell me about them? Sure thing. So my first tattoo was um, one of a father carrying his daughter. Um, I got this when I was 18 and the story behind that is that one of the things that was most healing for my heart was discovering what God was like as a father. Um, and when I was in Tennessee doing my Bible college placement, I heard God sing, daughter, will you dance with me? Um, and in that moment, it wasn't just a, this nice daddy daughter dance thing. Cause I'm really not like that. Um, <laughs> But it was kind of like, will you dance with me? Will you, you know, if this leads to to dying, will you do that? And I don't mean like dying necessarily in the physical sense, but in the dying to self. So it was a very sobering thing, but it was a beautiful invitation. So that's the first one. 
After that was the Slam of God icon. Um, so with, for those listening, that's that's on your that's underneath your, your forearm. Yes, that's that's a big one. I you know what I think we should get a photo of these and put them on the on the show notes so people can see these. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I had a dream when I was about twenty, and in the dream I saw this image on a sword, and in the dream the sword was my sword. Um, but I've always had a fascination with John the Baptist. I love the guy, but I'm sure I'd be terrified of him if like, I met him in real life because um, he would call me out in so much. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the whole thing about uh, all for the lamb that was slain. You know, let everything that we do be for Jesus. And the Moravians, there's this story of these Moravians that um, w- would just get in these boats and would raise a sail and they wouldn't know where the wind would take them to, but they were going to tell people about Jesus. And as they looked back to their loved ones on the shore, they would cry out all for the lamb that was slain. Now they might never have seen their loved ones again, but what they were doing was all for the lamb that was slain. And I I, I just want to live that. I'm not perfect in it by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what I aspire to, to, to be that reckless in my devotion. Um, so that was next. It's, it's funny because like a lot of what you've talked to us about today is just where the opportunities to share your story come along. Like when you go into a tattoo parlor and you're talking to the artist about like what you what you want inked, are, are they asking you questions like, so where's this from? Why, why are you getting this? Absolutely. So um, that off the lamb that was slain one was done in Belfast. Um, but now I regularly go to a guy in Hull um, Posto, for those of you who are thinking about getting a tattoo in the whole area, uh, an amazing artist, <laughs> shameless plug. Um, but we regularly talk about mental health. We talk about God, and he's someone that wouldn't necessarily ever darken the door of a church. But, you know, he knows that when I come with an idea, because I usually have them drawn out and, you know, designed to size, uh, he knows that there'll be a story behind it. So he always asks me, well, what's this one about then? Um, and you get to just share in the middle of that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you're stuck there for two to three hours at a time. So, you know. So, yes, after that was um, the anchor and the feather, the arrows, and the, to your own frontier and the map of Northern Ireland. Um, so, yeah, back... In Hull, I struggled again massively with my mental health. Had a really bad bout of depression. And some stuff happened and I ended up cutting again. Um, so part of that was was to cover the scars. Um, but the anchor and the feather comes from a charity called To Write Love on Her Arms. And one of the, the bands that support them um, had a band member that committed suicide. And in the statement that they released, they said, our hearts are heavy and light. We laugh, we scream, we sing. Our hearts are heavy and light. And for me, that's where life's at. Like, I love the silly, the fun, the ridiculous, but I also love the deep conversations. Um, and so the anchor and the feather is the heavy and the light. Mm. Um, the map of Northern Ireland is just because I like the place. Um, <laughs> apparently good things come from there, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, after that then was the anatomical heart. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's colourful. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it's, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, it's a 
black and and grey shaded anatomical heart with some floral coloured floral stuff around it. And the whole idea behind that is that the heart is a garden that needs tended to, um, which is this constant check for me. Um, so, you know, people will hurt us as part of life, but my heart is my responsibility and how I respond is my responsibility. So how am I tending to my heart? Am I doing things that are life-given um, in the midst of some difficult things or am I just being overwhelmed by that? So after that was the swallow and the sparrow um, and the lamppost with roots. That's the one I really want to know about. That's always intrigued me. The lamppost? Yeah. Well, now's your lucky day. It's the lamppost out of Narnia. I wondered. I yes. did wonder. It, yes, it's, it's that one. And the thing with the lamppost is that it's one of the first things that Lucy sees when she steps out of the wardrobe. So it's the thing that leads her out into adventure. But towards the end of that book or movie, depending on your preference, um, is that it's the thing that leads them home. They see the lamppost and they remember, mm. oh, there was this wardrobe thing. Like, and then they go back through. Um, so, yes, yeah, so around the whole idea of, of home. And it's got roots coming out the bottom. And if I remember rightly in the story, it's because the crossbar from the lamppost in the magician's nephew actually landed in the ground and grew. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that. You know? Yeah, it's, it's well worth a reread. Yeah, I definitely need to reread. But I have booked in for another tattoo, Chris. Go on. I'm getting a watercolour lion on the opposite side of the lamb. See what I'm doing there? The lion and the lamb. Um, but I think as well, it just speaks to that whole thing of how God pursues us. Um, he's gentle like the lamb and self-sacrificing like the lamb. But he also defends us like a lion and pursues us like a lion. Um, and that's one of my favorite things about Jesus is that perfect balance of the tenderness of God and yet the fierceness and jealousy of God for us. Um, so, yeah, I'll have that at the end of the month. Next time we see you, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a wee picture. So, Amy, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's like massively inspiring. And for people who are listening to this podcast, whether you've been following us all the way through or you've just jumped in today, if you've been touched or inspired by that, we want to know. So get in touch with us at hello at churcharmy.org. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're there, ready and waiting for conversation. We'd love to hear from you. That's the end. Cheerio. Thanks, Amy. Bye. <laughs>